Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Megan Kamrick, News Director at KUNM. Voting is over for the midterm elections and most of the races are decided. This week on Let's Talk New Mexico, we have a group of journalists to discuss how it all went down and what it means for the future in New Mexico as we look ahead to the 2024 election. Voters returned Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham for another term. Democrats pretty much won all the top posts in state government. What questions or comments do you have about the midterms? Did you vote? Why or why not? And what issues drove you to the polls? Email us at letstalk at KUNM.org or call 505-277-5866. You can also tweet to us with the hashtag Let's Talk NM. Joining me today are Julia Goldberg, senior correspondent with the Santa Fe Reporter, Sean Griswold, a reporter from Source, New Mexico, Algernon Damasa, editor of the newly independent Deming Headlight newspaper, and our own Alice Fordham from the KUNM newsroom. Later this hour, will also be joined by Dan Boyd from the Albuquerque Journal. One of the biggest issues going into this election, both here and across the country, was election security and the increased threats of violence. I think we all probably breathed a sigh of relief when we got to the end of our coverage late in the evening and no significant events had taken place. However, election officials and others took some rather extraordinary steps this year to explain voting systems and to warn against election interference. Secretary of State Maggie to lose Oliver's spokesperson told us earlier this week they would be running the election off-site at an undisclosed location as a precautionary measure since she has received threats in the past. And I want to go to my first guest, Julia Goldberg. Julia, you covered a lot of these issues with elections officials. Talk about some of the things they did to instill trust in the process and to curtail violence. Uh, thanks, Megan. Good morning. Um, as you said, um, Secretary Toulouse Oliver um, held a news conference with journalists, um, really kind of detailing going through uh, with us how Dominion machines work, because Dominion voting has been such a target of voting conspiracies. And they asked us to not identify by name or with photo the Dominion representative who was in the room, because they have also been subject um, to so many um, types of threats. So um, that was sort of on that end. And then when I was out um, on election day um, interviewing mostly voters, but also I always like to talk with the poll workers because they're fun and most of them have been doing it for 40 years. So they always have good stories. Um, It was the first year in Santa Fe County. They had active um, shooter training as a part of preparing to work at the polls. And I found that really striking. Um, I spoke with some, I mean, literally who have done it for 40 years. They'd never done that before. And so when I messaged with County County Clerk Catherine Clark um, about that, she said that that had been done. It was the recommendation of the Election Assistance Commission and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, And that it's just, you know, she said directly, you know, it's just the reality of our current times. And it was interesting talking with the poll workers about doing that um, because, you know, I've also talked with students and I myself teach at the college level. So I've done active shooter training myself and you're kind of used to students, high school students, college students have gotten very inured to, oh, this is just something we have to do. Mm. Then to be talking mostly with senior citizens who work as volunteer poll workers, like, well, I guess this is something we have to do now. I thought I don't think any of us should have to do this. Actually. Yeah, no kidding. We're, but they still, even though they had to do that, a lot of them were coming back to work. Huh? They did. They were okay. very resolute. And they said they really were not, they said they didn't feel scared. They felt safe. They were, I think they felt like this is our duty. And, you know, anyone who's ever talked to poll workers, you do that kind of work because you really believe in what you're doing. And I think they just had kind of doubled down on believing in what they were doing. And there were no real problems. I mean, mm-hmm. Catherine um, and some of the poll workers told me during early voting, they had definitely had people show up and argue with them about things or have sort of strong opinions, but they, they didn't really face any kind of physical violence that we've heard of, that I've been told of. You also talked with Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, Julia, um, about navigating these threats and what it's been like for her. What did she tell you? Um, she said her therapist was on speed dial. Um, she did say that she, you know, she said she had to take a minute and really think about running again because Mm. it's been death, it's been death threats and calling the FBI and not being able to have her child in her home because she was worried about it and worried about her employees. So it's been, uh, intense. I think, you know, she decided 
what she said to us is she had decided at the end of the day, it was more important for her to keep doing the work than to run away from it. And and certainly, I think in the election that she just unsuccessfully completed, she was running against someone who actually, you know, is an election denier. So I think that was all the more important to her to stick around. But it's, yeah, it, you know, a lot. And, you know, it, I don't think this is in people's minds. I mean, there were bulletins being issued by Homeland Security and the FBI and a host of other agencies leading into the election warning about violence. There was the attack on Paul Pelosi right before the election. So, you know, on the one hand, uh, I know that there are some terrorism uh, experts who say that they think... They think domestic terrorists sort of put this information out to make people feel scared, but that they're not actually going to show up. But then I don't know that anybody can really bank on that. No, (laughs) I wouldn't want to take that risk. Um, Julia, do you think the prospect of another term in our current political climate could feel like a mixed bag for Tulis Oliver? You know, I think from what I'm hearing, I haven't spoken with a secretary or her office since what day is it right now? Is it Thursday? <laughs> That's <laughs> we all so feel right now. <laughs> it's Thursday Tuesday. morning. But, you know, I think that everyone is feeling like there were some signs of hope as a result of the actual election results. I mean, in the main, these very loud election deniers did not do very well um, on the national stage. And certainly Democrats did a lot better than they expected. Republicans, um, I think, have some reckoning to do about what the, their party looks like certainly New Mexico Democrats um, fared very well. So I think there's probably one would hope maybe some reason. I think I read maybe it was in the Times where they said sort of people have reached like the end of how much craziness they're (laughs) they're willing to live with. And the fact that people did show up out at the polls, mostly many of the people I talked to, you know, when I asked them what mattered to you, why are you voting today? They said abortion and they said democracy. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's what they cared about. So... I want to go to Alice Fordham from our newsroom here at KUNM. Alice, you spent the last few months talking to a lot of county clerks, essentially the ones who run our local elections, and they've been under a lot of pressure, even threats in some cases. What kinds of things have they been telling you over the last few months? Well, the situation with county clerks is that I think that as the um, pressure on electoral um, officials has grown as skepticism um, by people about how things work has grown. These um, local election administrators have really become the focus of both sort of skepticism, criticism, um, and scrutiny in a way that they haven't necessarily been before. Um, Here in New Mexico, a, a number of election deniers have become very influential. So we see at the center of this, um, the um, former professor, David Clements and his wife, Erin, who have traveled the state and beyond um, holding presentations that falsely convince people that, among other things, Dominion voting machines are hackable. And when they give these presentations, which they do in different places, in churches in some cases, one of the th- I haven't been to one, but I've spoken to many people who have attended them. And one of the things they say is that what you need to do if you believe us is you need to show up at your local county commission meetings and you need to try to bring this issue to people's attention. And the way that people do this, which is that they're right, they the public attends county commission meetings, they can use public comment to go and discuss issues of importance. But the impact that this has is that it often takes the form of personal criticism against often county clerks who are elected officials who run elections. But in somewhere like New Mexico, where we're talking about counties that have populations in the thousands. These are people sometimes who've lived in the community their whole lives. Um, They do something that they regard as a public service um, and they have become the target of ire um, for people in their community who no longer believe that what they're doing is according to um, a set of rules that they have taken the trouble to to learn and take pride in. Um, And then in some cases, county commissioners uh, have also got on board with these ideas sometimes out of a sort of well-intentioned desire to listen to their constituents' demands. And they have placed county clerks under greater scrutiny um, and sometimes criticized them quite harshly. So I think the job of being a county clerk has changed a lot. Um, I do have a caller right now. W.R. from Albuquerque. 
Um, you are on the line. What did you want to say this morning? Okay, as I spoke with Kavaday, the, the screener, his reporting on Morning Edition that uh, District 2 prior to redistricting was solidly Republican. I disagree. We've had a little discussion with Kavaday. Looking at the Secretary of State's website, the uh, 2018 congressional election, no incumbent, social uh, Torres Small won with 51% of the vote in 2020 with the rematch, uh, Yvette Harrell won with 50% of the vote. So the former District 2, I think when there was no incumbent, was was competitive and not solidly Republican. Your uh, guests can uh, comment. Okay. Uh, and did you also want to explain why you voted, WR? I can. I voted because I believe it's my uh, civic duty to, uh, to weigh in with uh, my opinions. Uh, with uh, I, that, that's basically it. Okay. All right. Thank you for calling. Uh, you can also call today at 505-277-5866 to ask questions about the election, talk about why you voted. Alice, you reported quite a bit in CD2, um, and this has been a fast-moving race, so uh, Yvette Harrell has conceded the race. It was very tight by about 1,000 votes to Gabe Vasquez. Why did this race attract so much national attention, and what role did redistricting play this time around? Can you address what W? was saying it was never solidly Republican? Yeah, it was a competitive district before it was um, redistricted. I think that that's, mm-hmm. there's no question about that. He's quite right. Um, and uh, well, I think that the race attracted a lot of attention because um, partly because um, control of Congress was tightly contested this time. Um, and as I understand things, the national trend has been that congressional races tend to be less competitive these days than than they were, more easily predictable. So a race like CD2 here in New Mexico, the Southern District, um, which was uh, from the outset seemed like it would be a very close race or a toss-up, um, attracts a lot of attention because it's extremely worthwhile to campaign in such a race, right? Um, so money poured in from um, Democratic and Republican um, supporters, and it was it was tightly fought. <clears throat> the redistricting issue also made it um, very interesting. So following the 2020 census, um, the three congressional districts in New Mexico were redrawn. Um, and the way that the Southern Congressional District, CD2, was redrawn was that it uh, went from being primarily covering the, the southern parts of the state, and it, it reached up into the north and just took in parts of Albuquerque, including the South Valley, um, which is historically um, largely Hispanic, um, historically Democratic-leaning, um, and, uh, and, and was was seen to um, favor Democrats in a way that the district hadn't before it. Now, the Republicans made a legal complaint um, that the um, that the new district showed partisan bias. And in fact, it has now escalated to the state Supreme Court, which will be looking into this um, question in January. But the results of this election will still stand. So it's a controversial and a live issue. Um, and the Democratic Party in New Mexico has been accused of, of gerrymandering. Um, and then the race itself was interesting because although it seemed like the new drawing of the district was um, would favor um, a Democrat Democratic candidate, particularly a Democratic candidate like Gabe Vasquez, who is a first-generation American who speaks Spanish fluently and has made much of this in his campaigning. Um, it was it was a tight race, um, and I think it spoke to the kind of the the, the national challenge that Democrats are facing. That um, where it has become widely clear that the enormous Hispanic population of the United States does not vote all one way, um, that there are different issues in different Hispanic communities, um, and that um, uh, there needs to be nuance and subtlety and effort put into uh, any party's campaigning in those communities. I do. You did talk with uh, political consultant Sisto Abeta about the race and why it was so tight for Vasquez. We have some tape from him. Um, do you want to set that up? I Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead and play it, Marino. That's fine. It's because 
I think it's what we've seen nationally. If that is true, it's because the, the Hispanic electorate has become more like America. We're starting to look more like all Americans and we're starting to vote like all Americans. So now they're starting to switch over to the other side and they're looking towards uh, economic prosperity and economic message. They're feeling the same crunches that most other uh, families are feeling in, in, in the country and have become a part of the culture and the, the community. And we're not no longer just an ethnic vote. That was Sisto Abeta. He's a political consultant interviewed by our own Alice Fordham. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. We're talking about the results of the 2022 midterm elections in New Mexico. We'll be right back. Support for KUNM comes from Mitucci's Restaurants, creating artisan Italian food and handcrafted cocktails since 2013, with locations in Albuquerque, Rio Rancho, and the new Mitucci's Bar Roma in Knob Hill, and online at Mitucci's.com. Please join us in thanking our business and nonprofit underwriters for their continued financial support. Because of their support, our mission will continue as your trusted source of award-winning local news and music. KUNM, powered by you. Mason Bates is a classical composer and an electronic music DJ, and this fanfare is a combination of both. It's called Attack, Decay, Sustain, Release, named after the four elements of recorded sound. Music for Orchestra by Mason Bates on the next Performance Today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Megan Kamrick. We're taking your calls and emails about the elections held this week. What brought you out to vote? Did you decide not to vote? Reach out at 505-277-5866 or email letstalk at KUNM.org. You can also send us a tweet using the hashtag Let's Talk NM. We were just uh, discussing CD2 and Hispanic voters and Southern New Mexico. And I want to bring in Algernon DeMassa. He's a longtime journalist in that area and is the new and shiny editor of the newly independent Deming Headlight, uh, which was just purchased from Gannett. Algernon, what did you want to say about CD2 that's in your backyard um, about these things we've been talking about? Yeah, our, our previous caller had a very interesting point about the perception of the district being competitive between Republicans and Democrats. And historically, um, under its previous map, Republicans were elected to this congressional seat over and over again. Um, Steve Pierce, who was who is now the GOP chairman in the state, had a pretty good lock on that seat for cycle after cycle. But I, I, I don't think the caller is incorrect. It's just that the district itself, historically, the political landscape is really challenging. And I think especially for Democratic candidates, because mm. this encompasses agricultural areas. It encompasses conservative and progressive areas. It includes uh, the oil and gas sector, um, which has, you know, which has very strong turnout. But it also, you know, it, it, it includes the Las Cruces metro area. And so it's been a really tough district for Democratic candidates to gain traction um, with very strong turnout by conservative voters. And we saw this in cycle after cycle. Um, and so that that made this a really interesting contest. And I think even with the new map, although arguably the map seems to have helped Vasquez, I think it remains very still remains a very competitive district for Democratic candidates. And can I, Megan, can I yeah. just say one thing, just because I pulled those numbers and, you know, before redistricting from a registration point of view, it was evenly split. It was 38 percent Republican, 38 percent Democrat. The rest were undecided. And now it's 43 percent Democrats. And even with that advantage, it was still, mm. you know, <laughs> very, very tight. So Algernon, you also had mentioned um, the factor of the libertarians. Are there a good number of those in this district? Uh, there aren't a good many registered libertarians in the district. Uh, we did have an interesting contest for uh, Luna County Commission where there was a uh, very impressive libertarian candidate, just very well prepared, um, who contested but did, did not prevail. I, I, I keep an eye on the libertarians and we had a few libertarian candidates for statewide offices because New Mexico is a three-party state 
And libertarians have not yet established a pool of really competitive candidates. And so every cycle has kind of been a, a, a cliffhanger to see if they uh, achieve 5% of the vote in a statewide contest so that they can maintain their ballot status. Uh, in the governor's race, we had Karen Bedoni, who was until recently a Republican and then switched. She did not make that 5% threshold. However, uh, Travis Sanchez, who was running for state auditor, against Joseph Maestas, the victor, uh, he, he had a pretty impressive showing. And it seems as though he may, it seems as though that the libertarians have, are going to maintain their ballot status and get an, another opportunity to try to find some candidates who can really contest for these offices. Also, Algernon, we always talk about the split between southern and northern New Mexico in terms of culture, interests, industries. Yeah. How has Gabe Vasquez navigated that? You touched on that. I mean, there's just a huge wide swath of folks to win over. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, we joke about the Berlin Wall uh, down in our part of the state. <laughs> I hadn't and, heard that one. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, Gabe Vasquez, of course, uh, you know, not as well known in Albuquerque's South Valley. And so but uh, that was also true of Yvette Harrell. I think they both had to introduce themselves to some new voters uh, who, who who didn't know them as well. Um you know, one thing I, I one thing that caught my attention was that when President Biden was in Albuquerque and made his endorsement of Gabe Vasquez. Uh, Gabe Vasquez was knocking on doors in Luna County, hmm. uh, which I think was probably the right move, both both because uh, that this is not a district where Biden's endorsement necessarily helps him much, although you know, I, I think perhaps it was a firm among some of the independent and, and Democratic leading voters. But Vasquez had a lot of work to do in the conservative parts of his district. He seemed to understand that every vote was going to count. That seems to have been born. Oops, we just lost Algernon. Um, we might have to get him on the phone. That was making a really interesting point, Algernon. I'm going to go to a caller, uh, Bill from Los Lunas. Good morning, Bill. Yes, good morning, everyone. I... Uh I favor democracy, and I have always voted for democracy. I also took an oath twice to protect the Constitution, and I thought the Constitution was an, in threat in this election and in threat in the 24th election, especially uh, Amendment 14, Section 2. And that's why I voted, and I'll always vote it, because... I took two votes, uh, two, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my... Do you mean uh, because you're a veteran, Bill? Yes, mm -hmm. I, I took my oath as a veteran, and I took my oath as a professional firefighter. Well, we appreciate that, Bill. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. I just wanted to let you, where you finish, Algernon, you're in the middle of a thought, but, um, you know, Bill is living in uh, that district that we're talking about in CD2 in Los Lunas. Yeah, sorry, I, I dropped off for a minute and hello to you, Bill. Good morning. Um, that was pretty much, I think I was at the end of it, which was just that Vasquez understood that he really needed to make his case to voters more than he needed to be seen with the president at the midterm time. And so uh, yeah. that's what he was doing. OK, um, there were a lot of issues. I mean, Bill brought up some of them that were bringing voters to the polls. We have here in the studio, Sean Griswold from Source, New Mexico. Thanks for being here this morning, Sean. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. After a long week, <laughs> long couple of days. A couple months. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you traveled all over the state in the last few months. What were some of those issues that people talked about? Uh, yes, democracy being that, you know, what Bill had mentioned was something that was brought up by many voters. They just felt this was such an important election to participate in they had so they had the urge to do so um abortion was another topic that was brought up now i heard from people who spoke on on the abortion topic from perspectives of we need to protect reproductive rights in new mexico in any way possible but then talking to voters in western new mexico who want the state legislature to actually impose limits on abortion so i heard from voters who had multiple perspectives on reproductive health rights here in the state and so 
either way, regardless of how they stand on it, they do anticipate and they do expect the elected leadership in 2023 to do something about that at the Roundhouse in Santa Fe. Hmm. Um, so that's an expectation voters have. Um, the Another one was public safety, um, whether it's the campaign ads that direct the rhetoric and the voter perspective on that. Public safety is something that people have concerns about. Um, you know, here in the metro area, we have our particular own public safety efforts, but then also speaking to rural voters, predominantly on the Navajo Nation, they want to see an expanse of their public safety um, um, police force. They want to see their judicial systems be better funded. And um, that was also a predominant reason, not only for their state and federal officials, but for why they um, were voting for Navajo Nation president. Mm. That yeah, was that was topic. interesting that Boone Nigren won. Yeah, Boone Nigren won. Um, but if you were to drive around that area, Boo's supporters were mm. con- consistently across a bunch of chapter houses. Um, Boo had significant support. There was a, uh, an event happening uh, that happened in Gallup on Friday ahead of the election. Both Jonathan Nez and Boo were at the event. Uh, Boo supporters outnumbered Nez supporters like four to one. He just had such a hot stre- streak behind him and, a, and an energy a youthful energy. Boo is one of the youngest elected officials on the Navajo Nation, but he also brought in um, um, uh, female um, Navajo women who are now going to be part of his administration. Um, and so that's going to be a different a different shift in Navajo politics we're going to be seeing here going forward. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. What issues were you most concerned about in this election? Tell us your story by calling 505-277-5866. You can also email us at letstalk at org or tweet to and using the hashtag Let's Talk NM. Uh, Sean, your colleague at Source, Megan Gleason, spent the day around the burn scar in northern New Mexico, around the state's largest ever wildfire. Some folks told her that they worry now that the elections are over, politicians will forget about them. I was curious, as you talk to rural voters in general, do they feel overlooked? Um, you know, that's a very fair question. Honestly, I would say that, um, you know, with the, with the voters that I spoke with, um, it was very local politics focused. So mm-hmm. we're talking state house representatives, you know, the state auditor, state land commission, people that work directly with them, some county commissioners um, that they're looking to, 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 to speak with. Federally, statewide, I would say that um, consistently what I heard from voters across the state, whether I was in southeastern New Mexico, northwest New Mexico, some of these oil patch fields and particularly Republican areas, they do feel ignored by the Michelle Lujan Grisham administration um, that was driving a lot of, of, of their angst against her. I would even say that that the Ronchetti campaign was nece- wasn't necessarily a campaign for the candidate himself. It was an anti-MLG mm-hmm. campaign that most voters were really, really kind of latching onto. And some of that was driven from the core understanding that they just feel ignored by this governor. Uh, you inadvertently became the news briefly, Sean, when you were denied entry to a rally for Mark Ronchetti with, I think, Ron DeSantis, right? Yeah, it was a, a Ron DeSantis event. It was uh, Ronchetti's major, first major political rally event happened in Carlsbad a few months back. Um, yeah, I was denied entry. I had a was not entry with the press credential as well as with a, a ticket as a personal individual. They had a voter. photo of you on the phone. Yeah, they like, had a, yeah, yeah, security had a photo of me. They they poached me out and told me to leave. But um, you know, I, I made a sign, stood outside, wrote that I'm a journalist with a couple questions asking people who were inside the rally. And um, as Algernon can contest, I actually had more access working outside because it was a quite restricted um, area in the event itself. Um, but that was how I was able to get a perspective on voters. And I think consistently I've kind of given a big uh, shout out to the Ronchetti campaign because they helped direct a little bit of how to talk to voters in areas that um, can be pretty restrictive and difficult. That was really interesting. Sean, so what did people tell you? Like they'd never talked to a journalist? At the Carlsbad rally? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. so yeah, at the Carlsbad rally, almost every one of those individuals had not spoken to a journalist, but that was consistent to talking to voters across the state. Um, I visited, you know, several dozen polling sites across New Mexico and talking to early voters after they voted, and almost every single one of them had never spoken with a journalist. In fact, some people were asking me, like, why are you here? Like, why are you in Gallup? Why are you in Twin Lakes? Um, why are you in Grants? Um, you know, why are you in Carlsbad? And and it's because, um, well, well, one, we have a, a, a very gape of um, um, media access here. You know, we just don't have enough journalists in New Mexico. Um, and so they're just not used to seeing local journalists covering these types of events. And so it gave us a different impression that we, I think we need to build with our community as journalists and, and, the, and the readership public. I, I wanted to ask Julia um, from the Santa Fe Reporter. Julia, our reporter here, Jeanette Dedios, talked to people waiting to vote at the University of New Mexico, mostly young people. And abortion came up with people supporting abortion rights and opposing them. What did you hear from voters? What was driving them? Uh, definitely abortion was a 
was a tough issue. I'd say it was the main issue that was mentioned to me, along with protecting protecting democracy, uh, was something people said they were concerned about people feeling discouraged from participating um, in elections. They were just concerned about that environment. So they wanted to turn out to vote. And they were very worried about um, abortion, I think, despite polling going into the election that seemed to indicate people were tiring of it as an issue. Um, there was no indication of that. In fact, I think only one person I spoke with didn't have that as a top issue. And and across, you know, women, I spoke with women and men. Um, and I think one of the one of the male voters I spoke with, he was out with his son and he said abortion was his number one issue because of government overreach. Um, so it was sort of there was a lot of different ways in which people were approaching the issue. And then I spoke with one man who said he was vote. He turned out to vote solely because he did not like the governor's COVID-19 lockdowns. Um, but I will say he was a very large man wearing a proud to be an American shirt. So I took a shot and thought maybe he would be a, not a typical Santa Fe liberal voter because it can be really hard on election day to find people uh, to find Republicans at the polls. So I was going to ask if pandemic restrictions came up, but it sounds just, like just him. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty uh, pro MLG uh, contingency um, at the fairgrounds and then at the Southside Library, where, of course, the governor showed up to vote herself. Um, so, um, Alice, you also spoke to voters in northern and southern New Mexico. And what were some of the main issues that people brought up? Well, I think. Something I noticed, um, and I noticed that it was reflected again in some nationwide exit polling, was that a lot of people who were voting Democrat were doing so on what you might call sort of, you know, ideological issues, matters of conviction. They were concerned about um, the future of democracy. And they were concerned about uh, reproductive rights. Um, and a lot of people who were voting Republican were doing so on kitchen table issues. They they talked about the economy. They talked about gas prices, food prices. Um, and they they felt that the Republican campaigns had emphasized the economy, had spoken to the difficulties that they were having in putting food on the table, getting to work in a way that um, the Democratic campaign hadn't. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting in terms of the, the I did speak to to some people who were voting Republican in terms of what you might call an ideological issue. They were they were afraid of woke culture. They were worried about what their kids were being taught in schools. Um, but but on the whole, um, it was it was it seemed to be more economic issues that were driving people to vote Republican on election day uh, in the different. But I was I was speaking to people yeah from down the the sort of central corridors and Española, Santa Fe, Truth of Consequences, and Las Cruces. That that was the the takeaway from the folks I chatted to. We do have some brief tape of a voter that you spoke with in Truth or Consequences. I have a set income, and it just, it costs like double every time we go to the store, man. It's like, it's between that and gasoline, and we can't afford it, you know, so, and it's all Biden's fault, you know. Was that kind of typical, Alice? Was it, did it go right from, I can't afford to fill up my truck, um, to Joe Biden's, at re is the reason why? Yeah, I think, and and particularly, you know, once you get down there in, in sort of southern New Mexico, um, issues of gas prices at the pump, I think, are connected in people's minds with the um, uh, number of jobs that are provided by the fossil fuel industry there. So a, a huge topic of conversation among the campaigns um, is what to do about fossil fuel jobs in New Mexico. People feel like the Democrat focus on the importance of combating climate change might result in fewer um, jobs in the fossil fuel industry in New Mexico and might result in uh, less fuel security in the United States and uh, and therefore more expensive groceries, more expensive gas prices. So I think these issues kind of are intertwined in people's minds. And on the whole, they felt like the Republican options were better for them and they seemed to feel economic pressures more keenly than the fear of um, climate change in the future. Algernon, in uh, southern New Mexico, were there any other issues besides these we've brought up that people talked to you about who are bringing them out to vote? Well, it was an interesting night 
covering elections in Deming. Uh, Luna County has has really shifted. Uh, it was a conservative, democratic leaning uh, area for. Um, you know, in the 2000s and into the 2010s, but has, you know, in 20 by 2016, it voted for in favor of Trump. And this is a county where uh, Trump won the, you know, the local vote. And so there was very strong showing, very strong turnout by Republicans and very strong uh, returns for Republican candidates in the county. That doesn't mean that, you know, of course, that didn't affect the outcome of a lot of these states. Uh, contests in these state offices, but local candidates uh, among Republicans did very well. Republicans participated more in early voting and slightly more on election day. And it was a very much a strong, we need to elect Republicans uh, kind of story for the county. And they Hmm. saw, at least in the local contests, they saw the fruits of that. They saw that when they participate, uh, Republican candidates do very well. They even forced a uh, kind of a surprise down here, which is our state legislative contest with uh, Democrat Candy Sweetser, kind of a conservative Democrat, uh, is now facing a recount, but is trailing by a few votes to a Republican newcomer. Um, <laughs> and I, I, a lot of that can be attributed to uh, not just a lot of a very intense campaigning here by outside groups, a lot of negative uh, ad buys against Candy Sweetser, but also just very strong turnout by Republicans. Thank you, Algernon. This is Let's Talk New Mexico, and we're unpacking the midterm elections here in New Mexico. We will be back in a minute. The Indian Child Welfare Act is on trial in the highest court in the country. U.S. Supreme Court justices heard oral arguments in the most serious challenge to the 40-year-old law. We'll get analysis of the debate and how it fits in with the ongoing pressure on the law. That's on the next Native America Calling. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. November is Carvember, the perfect time to donate that unwanted car before the holiday and year-end rush. Make room in your driveway or garage by calling 888-KUNM-CAR. We'll pick up your vehicle, handle all the paperwork, plus you'll get a tax receipt and a KUNM membership. Don't wait until the end of the year. Take advantage of Carvember and donate your vehicle today. Call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm joined this morning by a terrific group of journalists talking about the midterm elections that just happened. What did you think of the results and what prompted you to vote? There's still time to call this morning, 505-277-5866. We did have a caller who couldn't stay on the line. She said, I am 75 years old and voted because I'm concerned about our democracy and the abortion issue. It should be up to the woman and the doctor. She says she's a Democrat and votes every time. I do want to introduce our final guest. Dan Boyd is a longtime political reporter with the Albuquerque Journal. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on and honored to be part of such a great group of journalists here. Dan, we have watched the governor's race get more competitive as we got closer to Election Day. What do you think or where do you think rather Republican challenger Mark Ronchetti made inroads against Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham? And where did he fail to get traction? Yeah, I, I think when you look at the numbers, I mean, Mark Ronchetti actually um, performed pretty well, uh, uh, kind of historically speaking, uh, against an incumbent governor. I mean, the last few incumbent governors, Bill Richardson, Susana Martinez, you know, all won re-election by really overwhelming margins. And this, this was a tighter race. Um, I think Mark Ronchetti just kind of faced a, a numbers problem, um, you know, especially in, in Bernalillo County and Santa Fe County and Doña Ana County, where a lot of the vote is. And he just wasn't able to make that case to moderate Democrats to to cross party you know par, cross party lines and vote for him. So uh, I think that's kind of why he came up short. The governor was able to keep a lot of those Democrats kind of um, you know that, that coalition, and especially when it comes to female voters um, and Hispanic voters, you know that they were a pretty uh, loyal block of supporters for her, you know, around the state. And and I think Ron Ketty, uh, despite some inroads, just wasn't able to kind of overcome that. Should we be surprised that it was such a close race? I mean, considering Ronchetti had no political experience and Lujan Grisham has held a number of roles over the years in politics and policy. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think somewhat, I think we knew going in um, that it's been talked about, but the headwinds were kind of a little more in Republicans' favor, given some of the uh, economic issues, obviously the, the crime issues in Albuquerque, and, and Mark Ronchetti certainly tried to capitalize on that. I mean, he was a um, certainly a successful fundraiser when it came, comes to running the, uh, the type of money needed to, to launch a, a campaign, and he got a lot of help from the National Republican Governors Association and was able to really... Uh, as anyone who watched TV over the last month or two saw, you know, kind of a steady barrage of, of ads, you know, from him, but then also from the governor who, who pushed back successfully and really tried to keep the narrative kind of on, on her accomplishments as governor and, and kind of, uh, you know, the narrative that we're on a better trajectory now and, and things are improving. And, um, so I, I wasn't surprised that it was that close. I mean, we'd seen some polls going in that it, that it was a tight race, but, um, you know, most of those polls also had her ahead, at least by, um, you know, a little bit. We have a caller, Anne, from Albuquerque. Good morning, Anne. What did you want to say Hi, this morning? how are you? Good, how are you? I'm fine. I love that you're having this show. I was coming back from having a mammogram. <laughs> um, you know what? I Every year as a volunteer, I do serious get out the vote because I absolutely believe that our vote is the cornerstone of democracy. Um, I, I cannot state that enough. And when I was listening to what was happening the day before the election with a lot of obstruction of voters, um, people making threats, uh, people who were armed, people um, saying they're going to, you know, they're going to post all kinds of really horrible things online, um, death threats to people, uh, all for exercising their right to vote, I was livid. You know, I grew up during the civil rights era, and it shaped me. And I thought, how dare anybody try to take away somebody's God-given civil human basic rights? And this is what was happening around the country. And I said, you know what? We have got to inflame ourselves again and remember how important it is that people be able to vote in a fair and free election. I got tired of the lies. The stolen election is like enough of that. And um, so, yeah, I voted for democracy, and I also voted to protect abortion because when I was 22, I had an abortion to save my life. It was a life-threatening pregnancy, and so I, I quite frankly, would not be here Mm. if not for that right. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, and thanks for calling this morning. Um, I want to go to another caller. John from Albuquerque um, wanted to talk about the political ads that were running. Hello, John. Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, uh, my comment is political ads. Um, I think they get more and more obnoxious and more nasty. And uh, in and in the and in the re- and in the recent um, uh, case, Marker and Ketty's ads to me seem to uh, be. If not totalized, they shaded the truth. Um, he uh, uh, so you know um, his 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 ad on abortion, uh, saying that he would you know he favored abortion to stop at 15 weeks, but the governor uh, was okay with abortion to uh, to stop it at birth. Well, that's that's not true. And in the state of New Mexico, 22 weeks is the cutoff. And if he wanted to be governor, he should be uh, he should know the laws. But um, so I, I but the ads were just um, on TV. They were just terrible. We finally started muting them. Uh, but there were no on both sides. But but on, on Marchetti's side, it was on Ketty's side. It was it was worse. Uh, and they were just, you know, um, pretty disgusting and and. And not much truth to them. And so I think if you're going to put something out, you ought to at least be honest. All right. Thank you for calling this morning, John. Really appreciate it. Um, And actually, uh, I was about to go to Dan. We have to bring him back on in another line. So I will go to Lynn. We have a caller from Lynn in Siebel County. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Can you hear me? I can. Yep. Okay, well, my question is just like, um, great program, thank you. I'd love to hear from the journalists. Um, really quickly, New Mexico has had a history of, of course, discrimination, structural discrimination against Native American voters. And so at a point, you know, not that long ago, there were 
consent decrees in uh, Socorro County, McKinley County, Cibola County, Sandoval County, San Juan County, um, designed to take away a lot of those structural barriers. And no one's uh, addressed the participation of Native American voters. Um, you know, it's like they're very, if you're in New Mexico, you know, you, you know about Native American people. And there seem to be a lot of just silence um, about Native, the presence of Native Americans in this cycle. So I'm just curious about what observations that the journalists might have. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Lynn. Uh, Sean Griswold of Source, New Mexico. Of course, we had DOJ sent monitors here to Bernalillo County and San Juan County, right? Yeah. During the poll voting to monitor compliance with the... Um, with the Voting Rights Act? Yeah, they, they were looking at the Voting Rights Act. Um, they did send um, uh, monitors to San Juan County um, in Utah as well as in New Mexico. Those are both areas that have a predominantly high population of Navajo voters. Um, there was also in Arizona in Navajo County, which is on the um, western edge of the Navajo Nation. And so they were monitoring tribal elections to ensure that people were, were voting fairly. Um, in terms of just the, the overall representation of Native American voters in this election cycle, one, it's a little bit difficult to track Native voters unless you're looking for predominantly at tribal elections, because when you register to vote, you don't list your race. So we have to remember that the majority of Native Americans don't live in tribal communities. They live in Albuquerque. They live in the border towns. And so we don't, you know, pollsters and exit polls, unless you're asking people, are you Native, you're not going to get that perspective. But from the individuals that do speak to Native issues, um, number one was Constitutional Amendment 1. This was the education mm. package that is going to be changing the, the uh, increase in the amount of money the state land grant permanent fund is going to be giving to education. That is viewed as the biggest single win for, edu- for indigenous people in New Mexico. One, because um, the group, the coalition that put it together is a group of Native Americans, um, education advocates. Uh, Wilhelmina Yazi, who is the Yazi in the Yazi Martinez lawsuit, she successfully sued, sued the state of New Mexico to, to invoke education reform, was a major proponent behind all that. Um, and, and another element to it all we have to recognize in redistricting, redistricting maps um, that, were, that, that, we, that we're working under this year were supported and proposed by coalition of Native American leaders. That's historic in a sense because you're getting 23 individual nations to agree on one map, and they did. And, and if we look at this CD2 race, as we look deeper into the precincts, that did include more Native American precinct votes um, that, that most predominantly went to Gabe Vasquez. So as we look at CD2 and the closeness of that race, as we get deeper into those numbers, we're going to see that Native precincts actually helped give Vasquez um, um, you know, a, a significant lead and help him get to his win. Because I was looking at one precinct in particular, um, 80% of, of the voters in this precinct on the Zuni Pueblo all went to Gabe Vasquez. And that was nearly a thousand votes right there and for an election this tight we, yeah. can, we can say you know at this point that that early indicators are showing that the native vote did help in cd2 oh interesting sean thank you we do have dan boyd back uh dan um i did want to jump back to a uh, topic from a caller i don't know if you heard him it was john from albuquerque and um, he found a lot of the political ads very nauseating you reported that this is one of the most expensive gubernatorial races in the state's history. A lot of this money went to relentless attack ads and mailers. Does that actually work or does it turn people off from voting? Well, I think probably a little bit of both. I think certainly it turns a lot of people off. But, uh, you know, there's a reason candidates do it and campaigns have been doing it for years. And um, that is that it, it sometimes it does work. Um, but I, I do think, you know, we saw we did a story as well, kind of on just the negative tone of this year's race, not just the governor's race, but the legislative races as well. And just, you know, that a lot of candidates who've been around for a while said it was, it was the worst one they could ever remember. I think mm-hmm. just the, the kind of uh, dark, menacing kind of mailers and things like that. And and I think, you know, this it, it's kind of a dangerous path. It's kind of making your opponent out to be the enemy. Um, I, I think we saw some of that on, on both sides. But even, you know, political science types, I, I think, are saying that there's kind of more animosity um, from, you know, uh, Democrats toward Republicans and vice versa. And and I think that's, you know, that's a real challenge that we're going to have to address going forward. And, and I don't think it's going to be resolved automatically now that Election Day is over. Why do you think this the gubernatorial race attracted so much money from out of state? Well, I, I think, you know, the Republicans viewed it as a, as a winnable race. I mean, obviously, that they pumped in that, that amount of money. I mean, more than $6 million from uh, one national Republican group. Uh, so I, I think they, they thought there was a chance to flip uh, New Mexico. So. Um, certainly that didn't happen, but the Democrats obviously spent big as well to, uh, to hold the seat and, and both uh, the governor and, and Mark Ronchetti. 
And I, and I think, you know, in a way, that's going to be the new reality going forward. You know, we're going to see in, in order to win a statewide race, you're going to have to raise, you know, uh, close to $10 million. And then these outside groups are going to be active, just like we saw in, in the CD2 race as well. I mean, it's, uh, I, I think, kind of a, a reality of modern politics. But be able to get your message across, get up on TV and send, send out these mailers and, and try and define the, the narratives in these races. Democrats pretty much swept the top offices in the state and apparently the well, yes, we know for sure now the congressional delegation, although it was tight (laughs) in CD2. But what about the state legislature? Were there any shifts as a result of redistricting or do we see um, any of this shifting the makeup of the House as we're heading into the legislative session? Yeah, I think Algernon mentioned we're still waiting on at least one recount, maybe two recounts in different races. But I, I think it looks like it's going to be only a, a one-seat swing either way. I, I think Republicans had hoped that they would pick up uh, a number of more seats. And, and I think one interesting theme we saw is, um, you know, Albuquerque had Democrats had really made big inroads in, in House races in Albuquerque in 2018 and 2020. And I think Republicans were hoping to win those back this year. And, and that, for the most part, didn't happen. And I think it's really a sign that the, the urban parts of New Mexico have gotten bluer. And, um, you know, as Algernon and others mentioned, the rural parts of the state have gotten redder, but uh, just not enough to kind of offset the, the population when it, when it comes to statewide races. We are almost out of time, but I was curious to ask everyone some final thoughts. Um, maybe as we're looking at analysis of the races across the country and what ways did um, New Mexico follow some of that narrative and one way, some ways we didn't. Or if there are other final thoughts you'd like to go, I'll go to Alice. Um, I think that uh, the races that I followed, um, I think it'll be interesting to see the next election with usually this bigger turnout, um, whether we see kind of the same trends, but with bigger margins or whether other um, changes in the economy um, impact those races differently. What about you, Julia? You know, Megan, I woke up thinking about something Bill Richardson said to me in 2004 when he was governor and we were talking about New Mexico being a swing state. And he said, you know, New Mexico just always reflects what's happening nationally, except it all happens within the state of New Mexico. You'll see the same divisions that you see state to state. And I feel like that's still true, even even though Democrats had a good um a good election, you still see the same kind of divisions that are playing out between states all happening within the state because of that rural urban divide. And also because, you know, even though Democrats have this advantage in terms of registration, it's the same advantage that they've always had, even when we were electing Republican governors. So I think we still have that kind of swing state quality. Algernon? We do. And I think that, uh, with you know building on that as a swing state um there's a lot that's unpredictable for us now in terms of what will happen uh with the economy and international trade moving through Mm. the u.s mexico border in the next two years which is also going to be a presidential election year and so i expect there's going to be very strong interest from outside groups um in our elections and uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what's going to happen. And we have like 10 seconds, Sean. Yeah, let people opt out of ads after they vote. Let what? After your early vote, a campaign should be able to opt out of ads. So let's oh, yeah. invent that service. Um, that's the number one thing every voter told me. <laughs> okay. That's great. That's all the time we have today. Thanks, everyone who called in to share your thoughts. And thanks so much to our guests, Julia Goldberg from the Santa Fe Reporter, KUNM's Alice Fordham, Algernon Damasa from the Deming Headlight, Sean Griswold, Source New Mexico, and Dan Boyd from the Albuquerque Journal. Keep the conversation going. Share your thoughts on Twitter, hashtag Let's Talk NM. On Facebook, search for KUNM Radio or email Let's Talk KUNM.org. If you missed part of the show, stream it online or subscribe to our podcasts. You can find it wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Our engineer today was Marino Spencer. Taylor Velasquez live tweeted. Jeanette Dedios took your calls. Kaveh Movahead produced the show. I'm Megan Kamrick, and this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.